Thank you, Lord, for this time again. Thank you for uh, Scripture and specifically today this letter of 1 John. We pray that you might use it. We know that you promise your word does not return void or empty, but that it accomplishes its purpose. And so I pray that you might use this uh, book to accomplish its purpose in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Little children love one another. Jerome, the church historian from the 4th century A.D., one time told the following story of John, Christ's disciple and the author of the Gospel of John and the letters of John. And he said this, The blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church, and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing but little children love one another. The disciples and brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, Teacher, why do you always say this? He replied with a line worthy of John, Because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. He said this because of the apostles' present mandate, Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the household of faith. One can hardly think of anything more noble to be known for than for your love for one another. Out of all of the things that you could be known for, out of all of the things in the world that an unbeliever could look at you and say, that tells me that he or she is a Christian. It is, of course, what Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is not your uh, theological knowledge It is not your ability to win a theological debate. It is not how many Bible degrees you have. People will know that you are a Christian by how you love others. That's what comes to the top. John helps us to see something rather insightful in his letter. And that is this, not only will other people know you're a Christian by your love for others, you will know you're a Christian by your love for others. We know this because this is the repeated testimony in 1 John. Just consider 1 John 2 verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. You you will know, you'll have assurance of your faith by knowing that you love others, that that means that you are a child of God. Or 1 John 3, 14 through 15, we know, we're confident of this, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And of course, there's many, many more examples in 1 John that we've been looking at uh, over the last several weeks. In many ways, the letter of 1 John is really about getting down to brass tacks. John goes back to basics. What does it mean to be a Christian? And how do I know if I'm one? It's something that is sometimes challenging to know for people. Uh, After all, it's not like every Christian gets branded with a hot iron that says child of God. Or do we? John would say, I think, that we do get branded. It's just that this branding is not one that's a physical branding with a hot piece of iron that's been put into the fire. Uh, It's a little bit different than that. This branding is one that's spiritual in nature. And more formally, in the Bible, this branding is referred to as sealing. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And this branding or this sealing will be discernible, recognizable, and understandable. Why? Because God in his sovereignty 
compels his children to obey and follow him. God will draw us along because he is sovereign. There will be change. There will be a branding of sorts. And so while cattle are branded with their owner's name so you will know who they belong to, so too we are branded with our owner's name so that we know who we belong to. We just need to know what to look for in order to identify this branding. And that really is what the letter of 1 John is about. If you wanted to sum up the theme of 1 John in a sentence, you could summarize it this way. How can I identify the branding? How do I know for sure? And thus John gives to us many, many marks of assurance so that we can know and be confident and assured that we belong to the Lord. Today is our 20th and final message in the letter of 1 John. And so we will conclude today with really uh, an overview and a um, sprinkling of some miscellaneous thoughts and themes and kind of hopefully trying to tie all of these things together so that we can see this um, really with a bird's eye view. I want to begin with a very quick summary of the book and just I want to hit on a couple of things very briefly that we saw in the introductory message um, to just kind of help us uh, get our bearings again here. You may recall that we said that first of all the author of this letter is John, the disciple of Christ. Uh, the authorship of John was really not questioned at all in church history until the 18th century. Of course, we started to get the rise of higher criticism and those kinds of things. So for the vast majority of church history, it was recognized that John wrote this letter, and I would say that we're confident of this. Um, he also likely wrote between AD 90 and 95, although there is a little less information to make us certain of that date, although it's probably somewhere close to that 90 to 95. Regarding the purpose of the letter, we said that John kind of centered his letter around three uh, themes. And these three themes can be found in three different verses in the letter where John says specifically, we're writing these things to you so that. Okay, just kind of makes it very clear and obvious. You don't have to guess about this. And so in 1 John uh, chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Chapter 2 and verse 1, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. Chapter 5 verse 13, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so we really said that there's a threefold purpose around this letter. It is that you would have joy. It is that you would be holy, and it is that you would have assurance. We said that these are connected to one another. We said that those Christians who arrive to a confident assurance of their state before the Lord and who are growing in Christ-likeness and holiness, the result of that is that you have increasing joy. Okay? It is those who are unsure of their state before the Lord, those who um, are 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 sinning without any kind of um, guilt behind that, that don't have joy. So joy, holiness, and assurance. Now I want to take this threefold purpose, and I want to connect it with another verse in the Old Testament that hopefully should help us to see what the end goal of the letter of 1 John is. And that is Isaiah 55.11. I alluded to this in uh, the opening prayer today. The Lord says that his word shall go forth from his mouth, and he says, it, his word, scripture, shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay? This is a bedrock passage in scripture that confirms to us that God will be that, that his word will be successful and will accomplish the purpose that it intends. Okay? God's word does not return void, does not return empty. Whatever God declares he is going to do with his word, 
He succeeds in that. And so when we take that and bring it back to these three passages or this threefold purpose of 1 John, we can say with confidence that for all of those who are in Christ, that this purpose is increasing in, in accomplishing itself in our lives. In other words, um, you should, having read and heard 1 John, be more committed to pursuing holiness. I mean, you should walk away from this letter and say, I need to be more serious about this. That's the word doing its work. Um, you should, having read and heard 1 John, be more sure of your faith in Christ. Those of you who are in Christ should have grown over these last 19 and now today 20th message in 1 John. You should also, having read and heard 1 John, have more joy. This is part of the word accomplishing its work. And I trust that this is the case in your life. I trust that fruit has been produced uh, from these last uh, messages through 1 John. Now, you may recall some additional themes that we discussed at the outset. We borrowed a phrase from Sinclair Ferguson, who said that love and law are in-laws. That's one theme. That is to say that 1 John teaches us that obedience to God's word is not contrary to love. Sometimes we can put these at odds with one another, okay? And society will do this. Broader evangelicalism will do this. And we recognize that um, love and, and law are compatible. 1 John 5, 2 through 3 highlighted this for us. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion after reading those two verses that obedience and love are our in-laws are compatible with one another. There is no pitting of them against one another. For some reason, I don't know why this is the case, but for some reason, some Christians today believe that they are elevating the gospel when they kill all the commands in Scripture. They, they think that church history is littered with all this legalism and all these rules and all these people who are just bunchy about obeying all these commands. And now that we've arrived on the scene, we recognize that the gospel is centered to everything, and so we're just going to forget about obeying, and we're just going to focus on the gospel. I would say that focusing on the gospel forces us to obey the commands and love and enjoy the commands of Scripture. And that's what John here teaches us. John teaches us that love and obedience meet in Christ. And so we are to walk away from this not having a disdain for the commands in Scripture, not being disgusted by the commands to pursue holiness in Scripture, but we should walk away enjoying those and loving those and wanting to pursue those even more. And I understand that many people uh, would like me to make all the necessary caveats that we don't pursue them uh, you know, as a way to earn our salvation and we don't pursue them for selfish ends and we don't lift ourselves up by our bootstraps and I agree with all of those things. But just understand, simply put, that they're not incompatible with one another. We are to pursue obedience and we're to pursue the gospel and to pursue love and all this fits together. Another theme that we saw in this letter was to challenge the spirit of the age. You know what the spirit of the age is, right? It's kind of the prevailing winds in culture around us. You know, every age kind of has its, its flavor of the month, as it were, okay? And, and th th this century, this decade, uh, the prevailing winds are blowing this way, and then this one, it's going this way, and this, this time it's going this way. And there is a certain kind of person who just gets blown in whichever direction 
it is. And so we certainly have some undercurrents. We have some wind that's blowing in our own day and age. <clears throat> we have uh, postmodernism is a huge one going on right now. And some people just follow that wind wherever it goes. And what John does for us is, as you know, he was facing some of the early forms of their spirit of the age, which was Gnosticism. Okay? And a lot of the themes in 1 John are confronting this. And what we said that John patterns to us, for us, is that we likewise should go and challenge our own spirit of the age. We should not just go with wherever the prevailing winds are blowing and just follow it like everyone else is following it, but we should point out very specifically ways in which our culture and our society and our churches have deviated from Scripture. And that's what John does here. I had a conversation recently with an atheist who uh, was quite annoyed at us Christians, the whole lot of us, that we have a tendency to talk a lot about some repetitive themes. We talk a lot about the LGBT stuff going on in our society and abortion, and we don't talk about other sins as much. It's like we just have it out for this one group of people, and we're just constantly railing on this one group of people. He was accusing us as Christians of being unbalanced. Some of you uh, may know that the FCC has a uh, rule that they call equal time. You guys familiar with this equal time rule of the FCC? Um, It's a rule where radio and TV stations are required to give equal time to opposing political candidates, okay? And so if one political candidate gets an hour of time on your station, you are required to give an hour of time to an opposing one. And, And you can't, it has to be, at roughly the same kind of time. In other words, you can't just give one candidate an hour of time at 3 a.m. in the morning and one candidate an hour at prime time, okay? It has to be roughly equivalent, okay? And this is what I think we're being accused of. Um, You know, you spend one hour talking about abortion or whatever it is, but only 20 minutes to pride, and so you are an unbalanced Christian is the accusation that's being leveled. I hear unbelievers, of course, accusing Christians of this, and I hear other Christians accusing other Christians of this. Now, I will say that it is true that we should not permit sins to become, in the words of Jerry Bridges, respectable sins. And it is true, and we need to grapple with the fact that we can be unbalanced for very sinful reasons, There are certain sins that we cling close to our own hearts and we don't want to call those things out and so we become unbalanced in that kind of a way. And I want to just remind us that we need to preach the whole counsel of God. We need to be willing to speak on all of the sins that are in our own hearts and in our age and so on and so forth. At the same time, we live in a culture, in a time, in an era And this culture and this time and this era is dominated by certain sins that it was not dominated by in other times and cultures and eras. Our culture has its own propensities, its own inclinations, its own pitfalls, and its own sins. And all I'm saying here is that John models for us going after those things specifically and by name. What he does I would expect that a church would deal with the sins of the age and the sins of its own community. That only makes sense. If you're doing this, then stop doing that, okay? And there's a direct address there. After all, when your son takes his sibling's toy out of her hands, you exhort him that theft and selfishness are wrong. You do not begin an hour-long sermon telling him that hitting is wrong and lying is wrong and rude speech is wrong, all in an effort to give equal time to different sins. The need of the hour is to confront him for this. John the Baptist confronted Herod for having his brother Philip's wife. He did not launch off into all 
8,492 sins. I don't know. I just made that number up, okay? He did not launch off into that. Daniel confronted Nebuchadnezzar for his unrighteousness and his oppression, the need of the hour. Daniel confronted Belshazzar for his idolatry. John teaches us to confront the sin of the hour. Where is it that we are right now? Someone once said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. And the point of this is simply to recognize that there are battles raging in our community, in our world, and we would simply do well to go to where the battle is raging and apply the word of God there at that point. We would do well to go and do likewise. John teaches us in the letter of 1 John, by example, to not be afraid or shy of going right after the thing and putting your finger right where it is. It's here. And some people can become very good at confronting every single sin that's ever existed in the history of humanity, except the one that the spirit of the age is right now dealing with. And we would do well to be aware of this and to uh, poke the eye of the spirit of the age, as it were, and say, this is where scripture deals with this. Of course, again, I will put the other caveats out. I'm not telling you to ignore other sins but I am telling you not to be out of touch, and I am telling you to open up your eyes. Have answers to the culture, rebuke the culture, ambush the culture, take the gospel to the culture. Okay, moving on now. I want to spend the rest of the time today looking over the various tests of assurance that John has given to us in this letter, because this is a very big theme. In fact, this theme is so significant in 1 John that I thought that there were enough verses to kind of compile a list of sorts, as it were, and that's what is in the handout uh, today. Uh, You have tests of assurance. I have uh, on the left column, uh, actually, let me go ahead and put this up here for you because I have this, okay. On the left column, I have put there for you uh, kind of the category that it falls under. In the middle column is the verse reference And then in the last column is kind of just the specific uh, nuance of that particular passage. Uh, By the way, this may be something that would be helpful for you to hold on to. Uh, Maybe stick in, fold it in half, and stick it in your Bible in 1 John. And when you're struggling with assurance, these are some uh, verses that you can immediately uh, go to. Uh, There are four categories of tests here. One of them centers around this idea of obedience and perseverance. If you're a true Christian, you're going to obey and persevere. One of them has to do with confession and belief. You're going to confess and believe the right things if you're a true Christian. The other one is love and hatred. You're going to love the right things and hate the right things. Okay? And the final one is the Spirit's testimony. Um, I also want to draw to your attention two confessions of faith from church history, which are located on the back of the outline. Uh, That is the Canons of Dort, as well as the Westminster Confession. Both of these confessions give to you three tests of assurance. Uh, And these three tests include, basically, faith in the promises of God for salvation. How do I know I'm a Christian? Do you have faith in the promises? Okay. The second test of assurance in both of these is uh, what we have seen throughout the letter of 1 John, the evidences of obedience, holiness, and good, good works. You're going to grow in these ways as a Christian. Okay? And then the third test of assurance in both of these confessions is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And John did talk about this as well. Um, if, if we were to back up for a minute, we would recall the fact that the Lord has given to us in his word, certain assurances of our privileged status before him. 
In other words, God wants you as his children to be sure and confident of your faith. God, his heart is that his children would know that they belong to him, not that we would be wandering around aimlessly in the world. No parent, of course, wants their child to be wandering around aimlessly, and likewise, the Lord does not want his children to be wandering around aimlessly. The Father wants us to be assured of his love and to enjoy this, by the way. Therefore, God has provided for us in his words certain affirmations and certain tests so that we can be sure of his love for us. The first way to be assured of our faith is very simple and straightforward. Are you trusting in Christ? Are you believing in God's word? Do you believe in the promises? Do you believe that what the Lord says in his word is true, that if you will simply but confess in the Lord Jesus Christ that you will be saved? That's really simple and straightforward and test number one. We might ask ourselves the question, have you repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Note that the question is not, have you ever walked down an aisle? Though that could correspond with salvation. The question is not, did you say a prayer? Although certainly we would want to pray to the Lord and confess our sin to him. The question is not, did you raise your hand in a Sunday school class one time? This one I know throughout uh, probably more recent church history has been abused uh, a lot, and that is, of course, you get a group of Sunday school children, right, together, and you have a room full of 20, 30 children, and you say to the children, how many of you children want to go to heaven one day, you know, and every kid raises their hand, two-year-old kid, three-year-old, they all raise their hand. All right, how many of you believe in Jesus? And they all raise their hand, and all of a sudden, everyone's saved, right, because of this. Um, We need to be careful of these kinds of pitfalls. The question simply is this. Have you repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the language that the Bible uses. That's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, and that is the language that we ought to use as well. Have you repented and believed? John Murray once defined faith this way. He said, faith is knowledge passing into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence, okay? Faith is knowledge. God in his sovereignty has ordained that the way that he gets to the heart is through the mind. You have to to know the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You have to know these truths. You have to know certain things. Now, if it stops there, it's a problem, because what do we have if it stops there? You have the faith of the demons that James tells us about in James 2, where he says the demons also believe in shudder. Okay, so intellectual knowledge is one stop on the way, but it is not the final destination, okay? We can have academic knowledge about all sorts of things. That faith must pass into conviction, I must be convicted that this is true, and I must embrace and trust this for myself, okay? Um, It's that old uh, illustration of, um, what's the guy's name, who uh, uh, put the the rope across Niagara Falls, right? And he he walked back and forth over this, and he he walks halfway out, and he brings a little oven with him, or a stove, whatever, and he sits down on the wire, and he cooks bacon and eggs, you know, over Niagara Falls, and he does all these stunts back and forth, and he says to the crowd, you know, uh, how many of you believe I can take a man across this in a wheelbarrow, you know, and they, yeah, we believe it, we believe it, and, and then he points to a man in the crowd, and he says, you, get in the wheelbarrow, and he, no, 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 not me, uh, there's a difference between, you know, knowing something to be true and actually embracing it for yourself, Okay, and trusting in that. And that's a little bit of what I think Murray is getting at here. It's this conviction, it's this trust, it's this belief. And then he says, interestingly enough, it is conviction passing into confidence. And I think that he is right. Faith has a seed of assurance built into it. Okay, you're trusting in Christ, and there's a certain assurance that comes with that. And granted, some of it, sometimes for us, it is very much a seed form. (laughs) I believe, help my unbelief. It hasn't blossomed very much. 
And so when we doubt, we should ask the question, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Let me give to you one of the things that I often say to people who are struggling with assurance of faith, and that is with regard to this first point. The evidence that you repented and believed on Jesus Christ in the past is that you are repenting and believing on Jesus Christ in the present. Okay? Because we will continue to be compelled by the Lord Jesus Christ to continue repenting over sin. That's what the whole letter of 1 John is about. You're going to repent and confess. And you'll continue to believe. Okay? And so sometimes people can struggle. I don't know if it was here or this date or that date or this date. Some people, I know, I've, some people's testimonies is, I asked Jesus into my heart, quote unquote, every single week between the ages of 12 and 18, right? Because there's this constant being plagued, and I just am so convoluted, I just don't know left from right, and when was it, and this and that. Are you repenting and believing now? Then that is evidence that you repented and believed in the past because he will compel us to continue to do this. This brings us to test number two, and that is the evidences of salvation, of obedience, holiness, and good works. John has filled his letter with these evidences, okay? And so this is the second test according to these um, statements of faith. The first category in this um, second test is obedience and perseverance. I'm going to just give to you some summary verses from 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You claim that you have fellowship with the Lord, but you're walking in darkness, you're not obeying the Lord, then you're a liar. That's a test of assurance. 2.19, They went out from us, but were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This is a test of perseverance. True believers will persevere in their faith. They will not make shipwreck of their faith. We talked at length during this sermon about the fact that true believers cannot lose their salvation because those who go out were never of us from the beginning. 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. Okay? Commandment-keeping is evidence of faith. 5.18, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Why? Because the one born of God protects him. Again, he compels us to continue to pursue Christ-likeness. Examining your life for perseverance, for walking in the light, and for commandment-keeping and obedience will give you insight into the state of your soul. True Christians are advancing in these things. Again, we're not saying sinlessness, but we are saying that there is guilt and conviction and repentance and confession and joy. And this happens again and again, and we grow and we grow and we grow and we grow. The next group is confession and belief. First John 1 John 1.9 might be the most well-known verse in this letter. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, and I think I put this on the outline here. Yeah, I put, um, so on your little outline, I have confession and belief, and I have in parentheses plus and minus, okay? What I mean is that we are offering positive confessions and negative confessions, uh, Positive confession is, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Negative confession has to do with our sin, okay? I believe that I have sinned, and I'm confessing this to you. And so this aspect of confession involves both of those kinds of things. First John 1 John 1.9 says that those who are true believers are going to confess their sins. And then also, 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. There is a positive confession here of Christ. 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So making true and right confessions about your sin, as well as true and right confessions about Christ, gives you insight 
into the state of your soul. True Christians are, as we mentioned, advancing in these things. Likewise, true Christians are advancing in their love for one another. 2.9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. These attributes, when they are at work in our lives, give us evidence and testimony that we belong to the Lord. If you look at your life and say, I have no love for other believers, and you say, I have no guilt when I sin, and I have no need to confess, that is evidence you are not a Christian versus the one who is a Christian and is advancing in these areas. Uh, The Puritan John Flavel commends us to do this work. He says, The examination of our justification by our sanctification is not only a lawful and possible, but a very excellent and necessary work and duty. In other words, when you're asking yourself, am I truly justified before the Lord? You can look at your sanctification and say, am I advancing in this? Now at the same time, I have to give you a warning. And John Flavel, again, tells us that while this is good, there is one thing to be careful of, and there is one pitfall to avoid here, okay? Because theologically speaking, we understand that your salvation is not contingent upon your sanctification, right? We know that. You're not saved by your good works, We do know, however, that the faith that we have in Christ produces fruit. It's not a barren tree, okay? There's no such thing as a barren tree Christian, okay? If you have that root of faith, it will produce fruit. And so we can simply look at that fruit. However, it is tempting for some people to put the cart before the horse and think that the fruit is the cause of our justification. And I want to read you what Flavel says on this. He says, The eye of the Christian may be too intently fixed on his own gracious qualifications, and being wholly taken up in the reflex acts of faith, which he, by that he means the reflective act of faith, or uh, asking yourself, am I truly saved by your sanctification? He says, you may too much neglect the direct act of faith upon Christ to the great detriment of his soul. What he's just saying here simply is that it's very easy to get lost in yourself. Uh, And you know Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. And he's simply warning us of the danger of reversing that. For every one look at Christ, I take ten looks at self. You look at yourself You're going to be a miserable person. (laughs) Um, It's possible to take a good thing and corrupt it. When you look too much at self, um, one of two things will always happen. Okay, so let's say that you've concluded the letter of 1 John, you've read through it, we've preached through it, and you look at this, and suddenly you have taken a good thing and you have corrupted it, and you look at 1 John and you purely look at this as a checklist of your your report card. How good am I doing? One of two things is going to happen when you do that. You're going to go into one of two ditches, okay? Okay. First, ditch number one, you begin looking at these qualifications, or actually these evidences, I should say, and you minimize sin, and you say, I'm not that far off base. 
I, I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I, I, I give money, and I, I do this, and I'm like the Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like that sinner, right? And that could be one pitfall. This happens when someone looks at these evidences, and they think to themselves, I wear the right clothes, and I, I say the right things, and I shun the right things, and I, I don't curse, and I am a respectable member of my church, and I'm not that bad off. Other people have a lot to work on, but I do not. This is what we call self-righteousness. Okay? It's pride, and it's arrogance, and it represents a massive misunderstanding of sin. I know and you probably know as well, entire churches that have been consumed and swallowed whole by self-righteousness. It is a repugnant odor. It is a stench that hangs over the church. And the people in that church have become so accustomed to that stench, they can't smell it anymore. But I guarantee you every visitor that walks into that church recognizes that odor And they wonder why nobody comes back after that. It's because self-righteousness has consumed the people, consumed their hearts, and they think that they are better off than everyone else. They walk around with their noses in the air, and they simply say, God, thank you that I'm not like that person and that person and that person. That's one danger of taking 1 John and not looking to the Lord, but just looking to self. It becomes a checklist of things, and I'm not that far off. I told you there were two ditches. I'm going to give to you the second one now. Someone who looks too long at self and looks at the evidences in the Bible might think to themselves, I am being crushed by my own sin and there is no hope for me. I can't get ahead of this. I have tried and I have tried and I have tried and I have tried and these evidences are so crushing and and, and so suffocating that there is no way that I am a child of God. They say, look at all the bad things I've done. I'm guilt-ridden. There's no chance that I'm a Christian. Now, provided that this person is a Christian, this is a failure to recognize growth, and it is a failure to understand grace. Okay? You can never out-sin God's grace. This is a very deep well, okay? Um, it is like we, since I'm on the Niagara Falls kick today, let's go again for Niagara Falls, okay? It's like you come to the Lord needing a cup of grace, and he takes it over to the edge of Niagara Falls and fills your cup up from there, okay? It's beyond measure. It's beyond count. We need to recognize grace. John Murray says this. I wanted you to take heart in this quote by Murray. At the lowest ebb of faith and hope and love, his consciousness never drops to the level of the unbeliever at its highest pitch of confidence and assurance. At our lowest moment, at our moment as believers in Christ, when we are at our lowest confidence of our assurance, we are still above the unbeliever because we have it. We have it. The presence of sin in your life is not necessarily an indication that you are lost. John said in chapter 1, after all, if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Or if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I find great encouragement as a pastor when I see growth in a person's life. And ironically, some of those people that I talk to, 
the same ones that I am encouraged by are themselves discouraged because of the battle of sin that they face. So I may be counseling or, or discipling or interacting with someone and I look at their life and recognize that they're not perfect, obviously, but I'm also encouraged to say, look at your sensitive conscience and look at the Lord's grace in your life and look at how you're growing. And that same person will be discouraged. They are discouraged because they're fighting a battle. I am encouraged because they are fighting a battle. You haven't checked out. The fact that you're engaged, that you're at the battle line, and that you're doing war with your sin is everything that John is getting at that gives assurance of salvation. The person who is an unbeliever will eventually check out. They left us because they were not of us. First John is not designed to discourage Christians. It is designed to encourage and assure Christians. Look to the Lord. Find joy in the progression of your faith. Take heart in these tests of faith and come to the full assurance of your privileged status with the Lord. All right, I want to give to you some concluding thoughts uh, on the letter of 1 John. And since we're concluding and trying to sum up the whole thing, I have six points of application, uh, and they're basically a paragraph each, so sorry about that, but not sorry. Application number one. God desires his children to be confident of their position in Christ Jesus. Use the means God has ordained, outlined in the letter of 1 John, to come to a confident assurance of your salvation. If you still struggle with assurance, consult the broader testimony of Scripture and seek out seasoned Christians to help you in this battle. Okay? The Lord wants you to be sure of your salvation. And if you still wrestle after going through 1 John, there's other passages in Scripture. And you know what? There are brothers and sisters in Christ that are sitting right next to you that would love to walk alongside of you in this. In case you guys didn't know this, we're on the same team here. Okay? In case you didn't know this, These are your brothers and your sisters and your mothers and your fathers here. Okay? Um, We all struggle with different things. And we need to progress in those things. Seek out someone else who can help you in this. That's the first application. The second one is pursue the obedience and holiness commanded to us in 1 John not as a way of earning salvation, but as a joyful response to Christ's sacrifice. Pursue confession, and I'm listing some of the the things uniquely mentioned by John. Pursue confession, repentance, hatred for the world, walking in the light, keeping God's commandments, persevering in fellowship, practicing righteousness, confession of the Son, loving the brethren, abiding in love, and practicing discernment. All of these things, in one way or another, are mentioned in 1 John. And we would do well to set our mind to doing these things. Again, not as a way to earn our salvation, but as a joyful response to what the Lord has done for us. Number three, remember that John also wrote this letter so that our joy would increase. Recognize the joy that is available in knowing, loving, and obeying Christ. Sin, no matter how small, diminishes joy. Spiritual growth and maturity increase joy. God has designed us to work as human beings a certain way. Okay. Uh, you don't put water in the gas tank of your vehicle. Okay, the vehicle is not going to function as it's designed. Okay, in fact, it's not going to function at all. Okay, you don't mix up gasoline and diesel fuel. Okay, that's going to cause some very uh, significant problems in your vehicle. Okay, you change your oil every three to five thousand miles. Right. You do those kinds of things, 
And when you do these things, your vehicle will work as it's designed to work. And in the same way, the Lord has created us to run a certain way. And when we run that way, there's joy. But when we don't run that way, we break down and things happen. And the Lord in his kindness, by the way, as a side note, gives to us, just like a car has a warning light saying check engine, the Lord has given to us several different check engine lights. And I would suggest to us that things like anxiety and despair and depression and, and discouragement, those kinds of things are little warning lights to say, you need to check something under the hood. Something is going on here and you need to see what's wrong and pursue the Lord in Christlikeness. The next application is to confront the spirit of the age. Address the need of the hour. Confront sin by name. Be specific. Don't flinch in the battle. Um, don't, don't dance around the one thing that's going on and list all the other. Don't do that, okay? Uh, you can do both, but you have to address the, one, the need of the hour. And that's what John models for us. In fact, that's really what the the vast majority of the New Testament is. I mean, how many of these letters are occasional letters written for an occasion? They sinned in this way, and so I'm going to confront that. They did this, so I'm going to... Specific things. So confront the spirit of the age. Next, recognize that the goal of assurance is to come to a knowledge of the truth. Right? If you are a believer, you should come to confident assurance and have joy. If you are an unbeliever, you should repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. In other words... There are, there's one of two conclusions that you should make after 1 John. You should either come to confident assurance and therefore have joy, or you should say, I don't think I'm a believer in Christ. I want you to come to the truth of the matter. I don't want you to have false assurance. I want you to come to the truth of the matter. And if you are an unbeliever, guess what? Again, there's a whole group of people here who would love to share the gospel with you and point you to Christ. Repent and believe on the gospel for salvation. And then, uh, the final one, because we had to put this in here, because of John. Little children love one another. Love one another. All of them. Uh, we are family, and we want to love and care for one another. Thank you, God, for this letter. Thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us in it. Thank you for these tests. Help us to apply them to our own hearts and lives. Give, bring us to a confident assurance of our standing. If there be anyone who is not sure of their state before you, I pray that you'd help them to use this letter as a catalyst to explore other scripture passages and to ask others in the church for encouragement and help. If there be anyone who is an unbeliever, we pray that you might make it clear to them because of our study here and that they would come to know Christ. We pray that in all things you might give to us increasing joy, increasing confidence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.